So chapter 23, verse 20. I am going to send an angel before you to protect you on your journey and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. Take heed because of him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you diligently obey him and do all that I command, then I am, will be an enemy to your enemies, and I will be an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will destroy them completely. Don't really know what's going on there. <clears throat> now, the word angel in Hebrew, can, it just means messenger. And it can refer to a human messenger as well as a divine messenger. There's nothing that singles this angel out as unique or different to all other angels. So some scholars have said this is an actual angelic being. Some have said that it's Moses or Joshua. Some have said, yeah, but wouldn't he just say Moses or Joshua because their names keep popping up all the time anyways? We don't know. Because here's the problem. We never see this angel at work. If it's a divine angel, never do we see an angel giving them commands and them having to obey or disobeying the angel. It never seems to imply. The only time we ever see an angel that's literally heading up over the nation of Israel is in the book of Daniel. And we're told that Michael is the head angel over the nation. And then there's some passages in the Psalms that refer to each nation has an angel ruling over that nation. And that's, that's a whole other topic. But we're told that every nation has an angel that's ruling over that nation. But some of those angels are ungodly nation, angels, which we would call demons. And that's why those nations are probably corrupt. And so what we do get the idea is from the Psalms that every nation has an angel, but they've probably all become corrupted by now. And all these nations are evil. But God is going to give them an, a holy angel. And they're not going to have a demon ruling over their nations like the book of Daniel talks about, but they're going to actually have a holy angel going with them. Now, like I said, that's hard because the only time we get any reference to that is the book of Daniel and some parts of Psalms. But all we can really say is that God is saying, he's already promised them that I will go with you, but he seems to be suggesting that there will also be an angel with them. What that looks like, I'm just going to plead total ignorance on the issue. I'd rather just stay silent than say the wrong thing. Then he says in verse 24, You must not bow down to their gods. You must not serve them or do anything according, or according to their practices. Instead, you must completely overthrow them and smash their standing stones to pieces. You must serve Yahweh, your God. He will bless you and bre your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. No woman will miscarry her young or be barren in the land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. So basically God says, look, you're to obey me. And by repeating the first command, it implies that all the other commands are getting repeated as well. And if you obey me, then I'll bless you. I will send my terror before you, and I will destroy all the people whom you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before that, um, you that will drive out the Hivites. We've never seen hornets ever go before their enemies, ever. So it could be metaphorical of just attacks. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the, lest the land become desolate, 
and the wild animals multiply against you. Little by little I will dry them out before you until you become fruitful and inherit the land. I will set your boundaries from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will dry them out before you. So basically I'm going to go with you. I'm going to defeat all your enemies. I'm going to drive them all out. But I'm not going to do it all at once because if we get rid of everybody, then the land will overtake you and the wild animals will overtake you and that won't be good for you. So we're going to do little by little by little by little, which also means that they're going to have to trust them little by little by little by little. Now, that will be unpacked a lot more in Deuteronomy and Joshua. You must make no covenant with them or with their gods. They must not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, he is not forbidding the foreigners from living in their land. Because it's kind of hard to love your foreigner if they're not in the land. What he's forbidding is that a foreigner come and live among them who continues to practice their idolatry and never stop. But if they truly become the nation that God has called them to be, they're going to be the most blessed nation the world's ever seen, that the foreigners will see them and say, I want to be a part of that, and hopefully willingly give up their gods and join Israel. But that is not the same as allowing corrupt foreigners to come in and corrupt them. Now it's time to make the covenant. Okay, listen, they haven't, they've agreed to all the requirements of God, but they have not actually made a covenant yet. So they have the Ten Commandments, they've heard them, The Ten Commandments have been extrapolated to them. And now it's time to make the covenant. Chapter 24, verse 1. But to Moses, Yahweh said, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship them from a distance. And worship from a distance, not them. That's idolatry. (laughs) Moses alone may come near Yahweh, but the others must not come near, nor may the people go up with him. So God says, Aaron and your sons and 70 of the elders, which are probably the firstborn of a lot of the families that are now priests, are allowed to come halfway up the mountain, and then Moses, you can come up the rest of the way. Now we're going to find out, actually later, that everybody comes up halfway, Joshua and Moses go up a little bit more, and then Moses goes the rest of the way. So there's this kind of like, who is more righteous than the other people kind of a a thing going on. So Moses came and told the people all that Yahweh's words and all the division, decisions and all the people answered together, we are willing to do all the words of Yahweh. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Yahweh. Early in the morning, he built an altar to the foot of the mountain and according to the will of God in chapter 20, arranged the 12 standing stones according to the 12 tribes of Israel And he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls and peace offerings to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half of the blood he splashed on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant, which is probably all these laws that he wrote down, and read it aloud to the people. And they said, we will be, we are willing to do and obey all that Yahweh has spoken. So Moses took the blood and splashed it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Notice how many times they say, we will do everything. We will do everything. It's important to remember when we get to chapter 32. We'll do everything. So this is, what, this is how you make a covenant. They, they kill the animals, which means it's costing them something. Every covenant costs you something, and every covenant requires blood. 
Okay, if you remember Genesis 15, when Abraham and God made that covenant, it requires blood. So they bleed out the animal into a bowl, and he took part of the blood of the bowl, and he sprinkled it on the altar. Because the altar symbolically represents God. You can't sprinkle the blood on God. He doesn't have a body. Okay, so they're sprinkling blood on God. So God is now covered with the blood of his own animals, because all the animals are his. Then the other half of the blood of the animals of the people, because the people own the animals too, is sprinkled on them. Now I know that feels a little gross to us, but remember this is a completely different culture and they're not overly like anti-germs as we are. Not that blood is healthy, (laughs) but remember he's just sprinkling. It's not like he's just like bucket throwing. Okay, I had a student like... (coughs) And one of my test questions I asked him, I said, okay, explain to me in detail how the covenant was initiated. And they must have not been listening to me fully that day because they said, well, basically they slit the throat of the animal and held the animal up and sprayed everybody <laughs> with the blood. I was like, no, 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 no. So you were kind of half listening. <laughs> they they bl- cut the animal, they bled it out as it died, they put it in the bowl, and they just kind of sprinkled onto people. Now, here's what you must understand. People owned only one set of clothing at one time. And clothes were built better than they are today because there's no company called Levi Jeans who wants to make money off of you by buying, selling you cheap stuff. So you're wearing animal skins. You're wearing things that like you wove with your own hands. And so you would wear clothes for a long time and it would be the same outfit. Now, you don't have Tide and bleach. So when they sprinkle this blood on you, they don't take baths. So that means for at least a week, that blood is going to stay on your skin. And for at least a year, that blood is going to stain your clothes. Every day when you put your clothes on and every time you're walking around and when you're walking in your group of friends and family and you're working the fields and worshiping, everybody's clothes are stained with droplets of blood, little black specks, you're going to be constantly reminded of that covenant. You're literally covered in the blood of your covenant with your God. And every single day, it's like a wedding ring. The difference is you can ignore your wedding ring after a while. But the spots are going to be over everybody. God required that every generation renew this covenant. So here's the thing. It's not even like, well, by the time you get old and worn out and you die, your kids come along and they have no memory. No. Every generation was required. Not every generation did it. But that means all throughout the history of Israel, people, most people's clothes are going to be splattered with blood. And it's going to be a constant physical reminder of that covenant. Now, it would not bother them as much as us because we're obsessed with cleanliness. But you have to remember, they work with animals every day. They sacrifice animals. Chances are there's some blood already on there from sacrificing animals. There's only grass stains, dirt stains. They can't really get those out because they don't tide and fat of animals and all that kind of stuff to scrub it out. So they're not going to be like, oh my gosh, my perfectly good white shirt that I just bought at Forever 21, okay? Or Forever 51. So um, <laughs> don't worry, I'm getting there. So nine more years. So the reality is um, they're already kind of useless. So it's not going to gross them out, but it still will be a constant reminder to them. 
of this covenant that they made. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, verse 9, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw God of Israel. So these guys got to see more of God than what the people did. And under his feet, there was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear like the sky itself. So they're actually at the throne of God at his feet. And they see this glowing gemstone that's huge that his feet are sitting on. We'll get better pictures when we get to Ezekiel. But he did not lay a hand on the leaders um, made of sapphire, but he did not he did a little. But he did not lay a hand on the leaders of the Israelites, so they saw God, and they ate and they drank. So they actually had a meal with God. I don't even know what that looks like. He always said to Moses, Come up to me to the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments that I have written, so they may teach you. So Moses set out with Joshua and the attendant, and Moses went up from the mountain of God, and he told the elders, Wait for us in this place until we return to you. Here are Aaron and Hur with you. Whoever has any matters or disputes can approach him. So Moses is going to go up in the mountain. The meals are with and He tells him, Go back down. Now you're in charge of leading the people. Before, I've been kind of just going up and down really quickly. I'm going to be up here for a really long time now. The people are all yours. Okay? Take care of them. Moses went down the mountain, verse 15, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of Yahweh resided on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from within the cloud, and now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in plain view of the people. And Moses went into the cloud, and when he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is echoing back to creation. Because in creation, he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, God entered into his creation. Now Moses stands on the mountain for six days. On the seventh day, Moses is allowed to enter into the presence of God. And what is God going to give them? Instructions for the tabernacle, rebuilding the garden. All right, so this is what happens. Six days, God creates the garden. And then on the seventh day, he enters it with man. Now Moses waits six days. And on the seventh day, God is going to give them instructions for rebuilding the garden. Now, the garden is not going to be the garden, 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 because sin is in the world. But it's going to be the beginning of the restoration of the garden. And it's going to take 40 days for Moses to get this. Now, the question is, does it take 40 days for Moses to get this? Or it was only 40 days because they're going to get interrupted by the golden calf worship? We don't know. 